0: There you can listen to or download educational programs related to all aspects of our divine faith, and you can review our schedule of upcoming events. We hope you can join us in person.
1: In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Heavenly Father, as we gather this evening, we ask you to send down your blessings upon us to fill us with faith in your Blessed Mother who stood at the foot of the cross that we who stand at the foot of the crosses of our lives may be faithful with her all the days of our life. We entrust this evening and all that we do, all that we are, to the hands of the Blessed Mother and pray together. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou amongst women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners, now and at the hour of our death, amen. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, please join me in welcoming for the first time to the Institute of Catholic Culture, Dr. Ryan Anderson. I want to talk a little bit about uh, what just happened at the end of June with the Supreme Court, Um, put it in some historical context of how we got here, um, and then also uh, go through what we should now do. I guess two weeks ago, Regnery released uh, the print edition of a book uh, that I've written in response to the Supreme Court's ruling um, titled Truth Overruled, the Future of Marriage and Religious Freedom. And so uh, much of what I'm going to say tonight is in that book, um, but unfortunately, you can't fit 200 pages worth of content into a 45-minute lecture. Um, And I should mention that some of the ideas that are in that book, and that'll be Presented tonight were originally developed with my co authors, a classmate of mine from Princeton, uh, Sharif Gurgis, and then a professor of ours at Princeton, Robert George. And so that previous book, uh, What is Marriage Man and Woman at a Fence, was the one that the three of us uh, co authored. Um, it was cited in a dissenting opinion uh, from the Supreme Court uh, by Justice Alito, and we were hoping it would have been in the majority opinion, but <laughs> at least we lose well. Um, so let me start by saying. Uh, 50 years ago, uh, Senator Daniel Patrick Moynihan uh, wrote his famous report, infamous report, um, on the state of uh, the family in the African American community. Uh, He was pointing out that while births to single mothers uh, to the general population were in the single digits, uh, within the African American community, they were approaching 25%. And his argument was that this is going to spell disaster for these children and for that community. He was immediately criticized for being a racist. Um, Here you have a liberal senator from New York State, a liberal professor from Harvard uh, writing this report precisely because he wasn't a racist, that he cared about black families and he thought something is going wrong here and we need to do something about it. Fast forward to today. I remember when Moynihan wrote that report, births to single mothers in the general population, single digits in the African American community, 25%. Today. Uh, births to single mothers in the general population are 40 percent. 40 percent of all Americans are born to single moms. It's 50 percent of Hispanic children and over 70 percent of African-Americans. Now these children have done nothing wrong, Uh, frequently these women have done nothing wrong, but both these children and these women will have a much tougher road in life because of the family situation in which they find themselves. And so if we have a crisis, uh, it's a breakdown of the family, but it's also a crisis of uh, men. It's a problem of absentee dads, absentee fathers. Gays and lesbians didn't cause this problem. Um, Heterosexuals caused this problem. It was straight people who bought into a bad liberal ideology about human sexuality and the family that came out of the 1960s. It was straight people who bought into the sexual revolution, uh, the idea that consenting adults should do whatever consenting adults want to do uh, the idea that love makes a family and that marriage should last only as long as the love lasts. Um, these aren't just uh, popular slogans that we hear today. These are things that originated back in the 60s, that originated back with the sexual revolution. And it's only after a generation or two of heterosexuals living out that vision of marriage, the hookup culture, premarital sex, non-marital childbearing, Um, the increased rates of divorce, the introduction of no-fault divorce laws. It's only after that cultural redefinition of marriage that Anthony Kennedy and four liberal supreme, that's how it's been lived out. The reality is it matters quite a bit. Compare Anacostia to Georgetown. Um, Georgetown, it seems to be that those children are flourishing. They're going to school, graduating from school. They're going to college, graduating from college. They're getting jobs. Uh, They're making nice livings for themselves. They're getting married and then having children inside of marriage themselves and perpetuating that cycle of human flourishing. In Anacostia, lower graduation rates, higher incarceration rates, lower employment rates, higher out-of-wedlock childbearing rates. Is it because Georgetown has better government? Is it because Georgetown has better curbside recycling programs? Or is it because if you look at the family structure difference between Georgetown and Anacostia, does that explain? some of the differences. So, if you care about social mobility, if you care about poverty, if you care about um, social justice, if you care about welfare spending, if you care about crime, more or less if you care about anything that you should care about, you need to care about a strong marriage culture. And those communities that have strong families tend to be the ones that flourish and those communities that don't tend to be the ones that don't flourish. And yet after a generation of our elites saying that none of this matters, it put Kennedy and the four liberal justices in a position to redefine what marriage is. The problem here is that while gays and lesbians aren't to blame for the breakdown of the family, enshrining this vision of marriage into our law, in fact, enshrining it into our constitution, claiming it somehow is required by the 14th Amendment will make it that much more difficult to recover a healthy marriage culture. Because it locks in a distorted vision of what marriage is, why marriage matters, and what it requires of spouses. So let me say um, a couple of things extend to the right to kill your unborn child. So the court simply got the constitution wrong, but it also got the dignity of the unborn child wrong. The, the majority of the court claim that we don't know when life begins, therefore it's okay to kill this non-human being apparently. So they do know when life begins. Um, and so what has happened? Uh, for 42 years now, uh, pro-lifers every January 22nd come to Washington, D.C. Somewhere around half a million of them come here. It's the worst weather imaginable. You all live here. Um, this isn't the time of year when you would come to visit to see the monuments or to see the art galleries or anything like that. And yet people come precisely to protest that court ruling and to bear witness to the truth. Uh, I think that puts us in a very similar uh, situation. There's nothing in the US Constitution that required a redefinition of marriage. Uh, There's nothing in the 14th Amendment that authorized five unelected judges to say that their theory of marriage is better than the people's. Uh, The four states from the Sixth Circuit that were before the US Supreme Court had all gone to the ballot box. They had a general election about this issue and all four states voted to retain the understanding of marriage that it's a union of man and woman. Uh, There was no reason for Justice Kennedy to say that he knows better. Throughout his opinion, he says that we now have new insights into the nature of marriage. That's not a legal argument. Uh, That's his own personal philosophy. And if Justice Kennedy would go into a ballot box and vote in favor of same sex marriage, That might be his prerogative as a citizen, but as a justice of the U.S. Supreme Court, he doesn't have the authority to say the Constitution requires his understanding of marriage. If you read through this uh, majority opinion, it becomes very clear that his understanding of marriage is that marriage is about consenting adult romance and caregiving. And if that's all marriage is, it's simply about consenting adults who uh, are romantically attracted to each other and want to take care of each other, then yes, there's no reason why it needs to be male-female. But as Chief Justice John Roberts pointed out, there's also no reason why it needs to be a monogamous relationship. Uh, The Chief Justice says, you know, Kennedy randomly inserts the adjective two throughout his opinion, but he can never justify why marriage should be a union of two and only two adults. Once he gets rid of the male female part of marriage. Uh, Kennedy has just inserted his own vision of marriage the same way that the Roe court inserted their own morality of abortion. So we should one, reject this decision as judicial activism reject this decision as violating both the constitution and a sound understanding of marriage second lesson uh, from the pro-life movement is that they protected their freedoms Uh, they protected their freedom not to be complicit in the evil of abortion Uh, they protected pro-lifers to be free not to have to pay for abortion or to perform abortion and the reason why this matters is that in the 1970s, I wasn't alive then, but I did the research, um, there were activists, there were ideologues, uh, there were extremists on the left, just like there are today. Uh, not everyone on the left, but the activists and the ideologues and the extremists, who said the following They said abortion is a constitutional right, abortion is health care just like any other health care, therefore, every doctor and every nurse and every pharmacist and every hospital and every health insurance plan should be forced to pay for abortion and perform abortion and dispense abortion causing drugs. Does it sound familiar? Um, The extremists and the activists lost that debate back in the 70s and it's only with the Obama administration that that debate has been reopened. Uh, But what happened in the mid to late 70s is that the pro-life movement was able to appeal to reasonable liberals to say even if you're in favor of abortion, do you need to make the Catholic doctor perform abortion? Do you need to make the evangelical nurse assist at an abortion? Do you need to make the pro-life pharmacist dispense abortion-causing drugs? Do you need to make Catholic hospitals complicit in abortion? And thankfully, the pro-life movement was successful at appealing to these reasonable liberals to say, no, we don't. They could say, look, I'm personally in favor of abortion. I'm pro-choice, but I don't think the government can coerce you as a pro-life citizen into violating your conscience when it comes to this issue. The same thing now needs to happen on the marriage debate. Um, We saw recently in Kentucky, people were saying either do every aspect of your job or resign or go to jail. And so there's going to be the question of what happens to a public servant like Kim Davis, Uh, we've already seen in Massachusetts, in Illinois and in Washington DC, Catholic charity adoption agencies have been forced to shut down because they were told either place children with same sex couples or you're violating our anti-discrimination law and we won't give you a license to run an adoption agency. So either violate your beliefs about what children deserve, I was, uh, at the Vatican back in November. And Pope Francis said very clearly that a child has a right to both a mother and a father. Catholic charity adoption agencies are trying to vindicate that right for orphans by finding them adoptive homes with married moms and dads. And so far we've seen several jurisdictions say no, that's illegal. Uh, We've seen the cases of the bakers, the florists, the photographers, uh, people of faith in the marketplace who say we have no problem serving gay and lesbian customers Uh, We'll bake a happy birthday cake, we'll do get well soon flowers. But we do have a problem about baking a same-sex wedding cake or doing the flower arrangements for the altar of a same-sex wedding or being the photographer that captures the first kiss at a same-sex wedding. You could understand why they might not want to use their God-given artistic gifts and talents to celebrate what they believe is a lie about the marital institution. And yet, we've seen that so far, almost all of these uh, wedding professionals have lost those cases. They have been sued and they've been forced to pay thousands of dollars in fines. Um, Two of the best known cases that I'll mention, one involves a 70-year-old evangelical grandmother, Baronel Stutzman, Um, she's had gay employees at her uh, floral shop. She was serving this particular gay couple for 10 years. And it was only after Washington state redefined marriage that they went to her and said, can you do the flowers for our same-sex wedding? She sat down with them and explained why she couldn't. She says, I'm an evangelical. This is what I believe about marriage. This is why I can't do same-sex wedding flowers. The same-sex couple didn't sue her. The state attorney general did. When the attorney general found out about this, he wanted to make an example of her by saying, our state will tolerate no bigotry. And they've tried painting her as if she's um, the new face, the new generation of the KKK. That just like we were against racism 50 years ago and we needed the government to forcibly integrate private businesses, today we need to shut down this 70-year-old grandma. Uh, In the neighboring state of Oregon, you have um, evangelical married couple, Aaron and Melissa Klein. They ran a bakery called Sweet Cakes by Melissa. It's how they supported their four small children. Um, They had a lesbian couple come in, ask for a same-sex wedding cake. They explained why they couldn't do it. That couple did sue them. Um, They were now the most recent uh, court ruling is They have to pay a $135,000 fine for the pain and suffering and emotional harm that they caused the same-sex couple. Shutting down these adoption agencies, uh, removing the nonprofit tax status of Christian schools is illiberal that if they hold themselves up as liberals, they shouldn't be engaged in these sorts of heavy-handed tactics. Uh, What this is doing is it's not fostering pluralism. It's saying everyone needs to think the same ways. It's saying everyone needs to be the same. It's the exact opposite of diversity and pluralism and coexistence and all of the other liberal PC buzzwords uh, that liberals say they support. So our job is to find the reasonable liberals and say, wait, do you really believe in pluralism and diversity and coexistence? And if not, are you somewhat hypocritical? But if so, can't you tolerate the baker, the florist and the photographer? Can't you create space for uh, pluralism when it comes to universities and colleges for charities? Um, Let Princeton, my alma mater, be a secular liberal humanistic university but let Christendom College be distinctively Catholic and let Wheaton College be distinctively evangelical and let Brigham Young University be distinctively Mormon. We don't all need to be the same. This is part of the value of a diverse free society like the United States. We're a melting pot uh, where we can have lots of different types of charities and schools and bakeries. We need not have the government coerce them all into being the same thing. The reason that I mentioned uh, the pro-life movement here is that think about what would have happened had the pro-lifers lost that debate in the 70s. It would have been impossible to be a pro-life doctor or nurse or pharmacist. Catholics would have been forced out of the medical professionals. Catholic hospitals would have been forced to either violate their faith or shut down. And what's interesting here is that Catholics were taking care of widows and orphans and the ill long before the nation state even existed. so it's vitally important that we not back down on this point. There are some people right now who would love nothing more than to shut down Catholic schools and Catholic hospitals over these sexual issues because they would win on two of their issues. They would win on their big government progressive agenda and they would win on their sexual revolution agenda. If you shut down all the Catholic schools, shut down all the Catholic hospitals, everyone now needs to go to the government-run public schools or go to the government-run hospitals. You win on both your statism agenda and on your (coughs) sexual revolution agenda. Um, So one of the things that will be important to do in responding is to have um, religious freedom, the rights of conscience, uh, the church itself be a check on the state. One of the things that limits uh, the overreaching power of the state has historically been the church They're two swords is what Pope Gelasius said. The city of God and the city of man is how Augustine put it. Two kingdoms is how Luther put it. However you wanna think about this, um, there are certain things that are Caesar's and certain things that are God's and Caesar's not supposed to interfere with those things that are God's. And we're gonna have to defend that boundary. The separation of church and state was mainly to take the state out of the church. And we sometimes forget that, that, that this wasn't about Christians not being engaged in politics, it was about government officials not running our churches. So that was the second lesson um, that I explore from the pro-life movement. That takes, it's across dozens of pages uh, because I tell the story of lots of the bakers, flowers, photographers, adoption agencies, and then I reply to the, well, this is just like the racism parallel. How many times have you heard someone say Well, if you're against same sex marriage, you're just like the racist bigots who are against interracial marriage and therefore the government should treat you the same way the government treats racist bigots. Uh, That's the argument that we're gonna need to be prepared to respond to. Let me move on to the third lesson though from the pro-life movement because I think this is in some ways the most important lesson. Um, And so I'll spend a little more time here and then um, we can go to your uh, questions and I can try to provide answers. The third thing that the pro-life movement did was it committed itself to the long haul of bearing witness to the truth. Um, The pro-lifers knew back in the 70s that the issue of abortion was not gonna be solved by the next vote of Congress. It was not gonna be solved by the next general election, that it was gonna take generations uh, to undo uh, what had just taken place in Roe v. Wade. The same thing is true here. If not, it's, I mean, if not, it's even worse because it's not just a bad court ruling, but whereas 1973 with the Roe ruling was only five years after 68, the sexual revolution, we're now an entire generation or two uh, of entire uh, families who have bought into this ideology. Uh, I'm always surprised by how many otherwise conservative uh, uh, Bible believing Christians don't realize that their own way of thinking about marriage and the family is much more shaped by popular culture than it is by sound philosophy or sound theology. Um, And so on this issue in particular, there's a lot of work that's going to need to be done at the cultural level to bear witness to the truth about marriage. Um, Not just to the male female part, but to the monogamy part, the sexual exclusivity part, the permanence the openness to life part, um, there are all sorts of areas uh, in which the past 40 or 50 years, heterosexuals have bought into a lie that now needs to be undone. And so those first two steps that I mentioned, saying the court got it wrong and saying they don't have the last word, protecting our rights and our freedom to believe and to live out the truth about marriage are both ultimately geared towards this third step, which is creating a culture in which we live out the truth. Because what good is having your freedom protected if you don't actually take advantage of that freedom, take advantage of your rights to actually put it into practice? And so part of this is going to be helping people understand what marriage is and why it matters and what some of the consequences of redefining marriage are likely to be um, at the philosophical level uh, and the theological level. I want to focus on the philosophical, the public policy side of things because the way that this typically gets played out in the popular culture is people say, well, don't impose your religion on me or don't quote the Bible at me. I want an argument as if theology isn't and, you know, biblical reasoning isn't actually reasoning. But that's the way this frequently plays out. certainly how it played out uh, when I was an undergraduate at Princeton. Um, so, we need both and so I encourage, the theologians to explore the theology of marriage, um, understand the sacramental theology, understand uh, the biblical theology on marriage, understand it from a revealed perspective. But it's also important that we can understand the philosophy of marriage, because ultimately the government's not in the marriage business um, because it's uh, interested in imposing Christian doctrine on people. The state's not in the baptism business. The state's not in the bar mitzvah business. If marriage was just like bar mitzvah or baptism, we wouldn't have the government in our bedrooms. Uh, The reasons the states in the marriage business is that marriage is both a natural and a supernatural institution. Uh, Marriage is both a secular and a sacred institution. From a Catholic perspective, you can think about it this way. Um, Marriage is built into the order of creation. Uh, When God creates us male and female, he's also creating marriage. Jesus then elevates marriage into the sacramental dimension. He elevates a natural institution built into human nature to the supernatural dimension uh, to uh, be a participant in the life of grace, which is why non-Christians can and should get married. It's why non-Christians can and should live out the truth about marriage as a permanent monogamous exclusive relationship. It's not simply for Christians, even though there is a supernatural dimension as well. The state's in the marriage business because of the natural aspect of marriage. Uh, And so that's what I wanna spend some time with now because I think a lot of people um, don't quite understand how to make that secular argument uh, frequently because uh, it's something that the media has almost consistently uh, presented as if it's just enlightenment forces of science and reason on the one hand, and then these backward, superstitious bigots on the other hand, right? That's how the media wants to present it. And of course, uh, there have also been some Christians who haven't helped us out here. Uh, The Westboro Baptist Church certainly hasn't been any assistance on this. Um, And so if you're a secular liberal and all you know about Christianity is what the Westboro Baptist Church uh, presents to you on the evening news, it's not surprising that you think Christians are evil and stupid. Um, So this should just be encouragement to everyone in this room tonight that if you don't speak out for yourselves, someone else will. And the someone else who might be representing you and your viewpoints might not actually be doing it justice. Probably if you don't know the Westboro Baptist Church, um, it's a a group of uh, Christians who picket uh, funerals with signs that say, God hates fags. Um, Beyond the fact that this is heresy, because God doesn't hate anyone, uh, it also does terrible damage to how liberals come to understand what it is we believe, and then also how they think about whether or not they need to treat us the way that they treat racists. I mean, so one of the reasons why it would make sense if you're a secular liberal to say, we need to shut down the 70-year-old grandmother's Uh, a a bigotry florist shop is that if you think she's like the Westboro Baptist Church, you might think she's much more dangerous than if you actually understood her as she presents herself. And she's a very um, warm, generous person. You can find her story on YouTube. If you just Google Baronel Stutzman. Um, She's been interviewed several times just explaining what she actually believes and why she made her decisions. All right, so let me, suggest how to make this argument in the public square. If someone says, well, why do you think marriage is the union of man and woman? Don't give me some biblical explanation. Give me a philosophical explanation. Marriage is based on an anthropological truth that men and women are distinct and complementary. It's based on a biological fact that reproduction requires both a man and a woman. And then it's based on a sociological reality that children deserve both a mother and a father. If you take those three secular truths, anthropological truth that we're distinct and complementary, biological truth, reproduction requires a man and a woman, sociological truth, children deserve a mom and a dad, and it's not hard to see why more or less every political community throughout human history and across the globe had an institution that was meant to unite a man and a woman as husband and wife to then be mother and father to any children that that union produced. Whenever a child is born, a mother's always close by. She'll normally be in the same room. <laughs> That's a simple fact of biology. The question for culture was, will a father be close by? And if so, for how long? And so marriage was a legal institution that these political communities utilized to maximize the likelihood that that man commits to that woman and then the two of them committed to each other would commit to that child. Because when this doesn't happen, the social costs run high. Um, You know, I opened by citing Daniel Patrick Moynihan. I opened by comparing Anacostia to Georgetown. Those were the sorts of consequences that these political communities were seeking to prevent, seeking to avoid these are truths about human nature it's not about supernature, it's not about the supernatural it's not about the order of grace simply about the order of nature and our humanity as male and female now why does this matter in particular um, i could say that you know just look at georgetown versus anacostia but let me drill a little deeper i'll quote a sociologist from rutgers university uh, david popeno he did a literature review of all of the relevant social science here's what he says he says quote The burden of social science evidence supports the idea that gender differentiated parenting is important for human development and the contribution of fathers to child rearing is unique and irreplaceable. He then concluded, we should disavow the notion that mommies can make good daddies just as we should disavow the popular notion that daddies can make good mommies. The two sexes are different to the core and each is necessary culturally and biologically for the optimal development of a human being," end quote. Let me illustrate that with a thought experiment. If I tell you that it's Saturday morning and a five-year-old boy is in the living room wrestling with one of his parents, this parent is teaching the boy that it's okay to put people in headlocks, but it's not okay to bite or to pull hair or to gouge out eyes, which parent is most likely in the living room? and the laughter suggests that you all know it's most likely the father. And this isn't because we've engaged in some global conspiracy of gender stereotypes in which only fathers can wrestle on living room carpets. This is what comes naturally to dads. This is what dads enjoy doing with their five-year-old sons. In the same way that fathers are more likely to be tossing a newborn baby in the air, mother's more likely to say, honey, not so high. And again, it's not because we have a global conspiracy in which women need to be more nurturing and more protective and more compassionate. It's just that that's what comes naturally to women. They're more nurturing, more compassionate, more caring. It might have something to do with carrying a child in the womb for nine months. There might be some biological differences between men and women, between moms and dads that explain why they interact with children differently. Uh, Advanced five years, 10-year-old son might be in the backyard with his father Um, tossing around a football. 15-year-old son might be in his bedroom learning how to tie a necktie to get ready for his first high school dance. Um, These anecdotes are meant to get you to laugh, to actually show that we all deep down inside kind of can recognize that moms and dads aren't interchangeable. Take a step back from the anecdotes. Look at the data. We know that for a boy who grows up without his father, more likely to commit crime, less likely to graduate from school, more likely to be in jail, less likely to be employed. Why is that? Because the father is helping his son develop and to mature into a law-abiding productive man. Uh, He helps his son develop into a man. Fathers do something complementary for their daughters. Uh, Fathers on average and for the most part um, tend to have deeper voices than mothers. Fathers on average and for the most part tend to be larger than mothers. Fathers on average and for the most part tend to have once been young men themselves. And so ever since the Bruce Jenner thing, I have to say on average and for the most part. Um, But as a result, they are suspicious of what the wrong sort of young man might be interested in with their daughter. And so fathers tend to be the ones who scare away bad boyfriends. They tend to be the ones who police who it is that's dating their daughter. Fathers who are married to their daughter's mothers model what a good male-female marriage looks like. So a father who's married to his daughter's mother treats her right, is also modeling for her what she might look for in a boyfriend, a fiancé, a potential husband. Take a step back from the anecdotes. They're meant to get you to laugh. Look at the data. We know that girls who grow up without their fathers are more likely to start sexual activity earlier in life more likely to be pregnant outside of marriage, more likely to have an abortion. Because the father helps protect his daughter's innocence. He helps protect the space for his daughter to become a woman. Don't just believe it because I tell you, uh, let me read you a quote and then I'll ask you, um, which right wing nut job said this? So put on your thinking caps, you know, was it Rush Limbaugh, was it um, George W. Bush, Uh, was it one of the popes, who said this? We know the statistics, children who grow up without a father are five times more likely to live in poverty and commit crime, nine times more likely to drop out of schools and 20 times more likely to end up in prison. They are more likely to have behavioral problems or run away from home or become teenage parents themselves and the foundations of our community are weaker because of it. Who spoke those words? Barack Obama. I heard someone say it. President Obama said that before he evolved. (laughs) Now, why did Obama, before his evolution, say this? He gave an answer when he gave the commencement address at the all-male, historically black college, Morehouse College. So, he's addressing this all-male graduating class of this historically black college. Here's what he says. He says, I have tried to be for Michelle and my girls what my father was not, from my mother and me. I want to break that cycle. So think about that. President Obama knows firsthand the challenges both to himself and to his mother by having an absentee father. And so he is trying to be for his wife and for his children what his father wasn't for him. And now he's encouraging these graduates to follow his example of breaking that cycle of family disintegration and all the social dysfunction that follows upon it. This is a good point to pause to say that um, social science on the family is always the law of averages. Just because you grow up outside of a married intact mom, dad, family doesn't mean you're somehow destined uh, for a life of suffering. I mean, President Obama is a perfectly good example uh, that you can lead a very successful life even if uh, you're brought up outside of this arrangement. And yet, President Obama himself speaks about how important fathers are because he knows he's the exception that proves the rule, Uh, that he had a tougher road in life and that he doesn't want to see this cycle perpetuate with 70% of children like him being born to single mothers, that he wants that cycle to be broken. So, here's the response to President Obama. How do you now, after your evolution, say that these fathers are essential when you support a redefinition of marriage that makes fathers optional. If you think about it, that's the first consequence of the redefinition of marriage. That you can't simultaneously say fathers are essential when your Supreme Court has redefined marriage to make them optional. And so I just wanna go through four consequences of the redefinition of marriage and then I'm gonna stop and uh, open it up to your questions. And all four of these consequences are going to follow under the rubric of ideas have consequences and bad ideas have bad consequences. And what we've done is we've replaced one vision of marriage, that marriage is a um, union of sexually complementary spouses who pledge to live by norms of permanence, exclusivity and monogamy precisely because they can create new life and unite new life with a mom and a dad. With this other vision of marriage, the vision that came out of the sexual revolution, consenting adults should do whatever consenting adults want to do. And so what happens when your law discards this understanding of marriage and embraces this understanding of marriage? I'll give you four uh, um, consequences. One, you will have no institution left in public life that upholds even the ideal that every child deserves a mom and a dad. To say what Pope Francis said, that a child has a right to a mother and a father will over time increasingly be viewed as hate speech in a legal culture that says that men and women are interchangeable and therefore mothers and fathers are replaceable. A legal culture that says true moms or true dads is the same thing as a married mom and dad will increasingly view any institution that says children deserve a mom and a dad with suspicion and there will be no public institution that's even upholding this ideal for the public at large. Um, And the best way to encapsulate this is to say you can't simultaneously say for those 70% of children Anacostia their fathers matter, when you've actually said no, all you need is consenting adult love of whatever size or shape that consent comes in. Uh, The second consequence is that there's no logical reason for the redefinition of marriage to stop here. That if love equals love, consenting adult love can come in as many different sizes and shapes as is imaginable. Let me introduce you to three new words that activists um, have coined to actually describe their future redefinitions. Uh, the first is the term thruple. A thruple is a three-person couple. Take the word couple, chop off the C, and then add a THR. Um, and I'm going to go through this because of time. I'm going to move quickly through these. All the footnotes, all the references, uh, this is chapter two of the Truth Overruled book. This was in New York Magazine. It's a prominent publication up in New York City. It was profiling three men who live with each other and love each other. They sleep with each other. They want to cook. They do cook meals for each other. They want to be able to visit each other in the hospital. They want to be able to have a joint checking account. They want to be able to file a joint tax return. If all that marriage is is consenting adult romance and caregiving, they have a marriage. And if you go before the US Supreme Court and you demand marriage equality for the same sex couple, on what basis can you deny marriage equality to the same sex thruple, Or to the opposite sex quartet? Sexual orientation makes no difference here. If love equals love, why can't you keep adding equal signs? And how do you limit marriage to a monogamous union once you've gotten rid of the male female part? The way we arrived at monogamy in Western law and culture that it's one man and one woman who can unite in the act that can create new life and every new life has one mother and one father. But once the Supreme Court says the male-female part of marriage is irrational and arbitrary, bigoted, homophobic, add in your preferred um, uh, adjective there, once they say that uh, the procreative aspect of marriage is outdated, once they say the mothering-fathering part of marriage is a historic relic, What's magical about the number two? What is your principled basis for monogamy once you've gotten rid of sexual complementarity? Sexual complementarity is the foundation upon which these other marital norms rest. Uh, The next term is monogamish. This was in the New York Times Sunday Magazine. It's a profile of the gay rights activist Dan Savage. Monogamish is a play on the word monogamous. It's a two-person relationship, but it's sexually open. Uh, this article was titled, Married, comma, With Infidelities. And the reporter asked Dan Savage, he says, what can straight couples learn from gay couples once marriage has been redefined? He said, they can learn the virtue of the open relationship. Uh, that gay couples are very good about having open relationships. Uh, in the sense that it's a true person relationship in terms of the romance and the caregiving, but they can find sexual fulfillment with additional partners. That it's unrealistic, it's inhumane to think one person can satisfy all of your sexual needs. And so marriage will be a better institution when it's a monogamish institution rather than a monogamous institution. And again, if consenting adults should do whatever consenting adults want to do, what's the problem with that? Uh, The last term, it's now two years and two months old. It was in the Washington Post uh, two Julys ago. It's the word wed-lease. It's a play on the word wedlock. If wedlock, conjures up an image of something strong and sturdy and permanent. When lease was meant to do the exact opposite. Just like you can lease a car or you can lease a house. Uh, this lawyer writing in the Washington Post said, you should be able to lease a spouse. Um, he was arguing for temporary marriage licenses. Uh, he said right now, look, the problem with 21st century life is that nothing's permanent. Everything is fleeting, everything is temporary. So, why do we have permanent marriage licenses? Why not sign up for a five year wed lease? If it's going well, you can renew it. If it's not going well, it'll automatically dissolve. Just like your lease on a car. You can renew it if you like it, or you can upgrade for a new model if you prefer <laughs> that. The word model used intentionally. Now, I said that I didn't wanna get into the theology of this. So maybe one of your subsequent sessions here will be on the theology of wedleases, thruples and monogamish relationships. I imagine it would be a very short conversation. <laughs> Although with the Synod, who knows? Um, that was a joke, sorry. Um, let me just, explore the public policy consequences. The reason the state got in the marriage business in the first place was to get one man and one woman to commit to each other permanently and exclusively so that any children they create would be created inside the context of a marital relationship so that those children would know their mother and their father. The thruple, the wed-lease, and the monogamous relationship increase the number of sexual partners that adults have and they decrease the amount of commitment that adults make to one another. The thruple, the monogamous relationship, they're increasing your sexual partners. And then the wed lease, decreasing the amount of commitment that you make to your sexual partners. What's the most likely outcome of this? From a purely secular public policy perspective, the most likely outcome is that you're going to increase the number of fatherless children. Because you're going to be creating children with multiple women to whom you are not committed. It's a guaranteed recipe for increased family fragmentation. And yet, all three of these new words, the thruple, the wedlease, and the monogamous arrangements, follow as a logical matter just like night follows on day once you get rid of the male-female part. Sexual complementarity is the foundation upon which monogamy, exclusivity, and permanence are built. And now that we've wiped away the complementarity part of marriage, if we follow this logic, you can see where it goes. I spoke yesterday at Harvard Law School and I just pointed this out to the students and I went through Kennedy's opinion. Since we were at the law school, it was much more focused on Kennedy's opinion and I went through. He, he has four different principles and I said, give me a reason for why these four principles wouldn't require marriage equality for the thruple." They didn't have an answer. There isn't an answer to that sort of a question because if love equals love, as Chief Justice John Roberts pointed out in his dissenting opinion, Kennedy's logic goes in this direction. Uh, The third consequence is for unborn human life. Um, Two ways in which redefinition of marriage will impact unborn human life. The first is that this worldview that undergirds same-sex marriage and the redefinition of marriage more generally is the worldview that has caused the abortion crisis in the first place. It's a worldview that says, well, consenting adults can do whatever they want with their bodies. They consented to the sex. They didn't consent to have a child and therefore they have a right to choose with their own bodies what to do, conveniently ignoring that it was that sex act that they consented to that created the child in the first place and that they're not just doing something to their own bodies but to another body as well. But that's the worldview that's being enshrined. I've never heard this. It wouldn't be impossible for someone to say this, but I've never heard someone advocate for both same-sex marriage and chastity. And just ask yourself that. It wouldn't be impossible for someone to make that argument, but have you ever heard the same person be in favor of gay marriage and the virtue of chastity? And I've never encountered that because there's a certain cultural worldview that fuels uh, this agenda. The second way in which the redefinition of marriage will impact unborn children um, is that if you redefine marriage, you will be redefining parenthood. And if you redefine parenthood, you will be redefining childhood, including the creation of children. So one of the things that we're already seeing is that one of the main drivers um, for surrogate wombs and sperm donors and egg donors are same-sex couples that want children of their own. And this is just like the way that I opened the lecture. Gays and lesbians didn't create this problem, straight people did. The problem of unregulated assisted reproductive technologies are largely ones that come out ever since IVF was invented in the 70s uh, with discovery, uh, uh, I think it's Louise Brown who's the first IVF child. Leon Cass, uh, a Jewish thinker, was one of the first ones speaking out against this. Um, He's also been speaking out against cloning. Um, This is a problem that uh, the heterosexual community created, um, but now it will be exacerbated by the redefinition of marriage because now a same-sex couple, let's say it's a same-sex male couple, they now have marriage equality. Uh, the third principle of Justice Kennedy's opinion was that marriage equality was a right because of rights to parenting and child raising. How will they acquire a child of their own? They can purchase someone's eggs. They can rent someone's womb. Same-sex uh, lesbian couple, they can use one of their eggs, one of their wombs, and they can get a sperm donor, or they can buy sperm, or however they want to do it. Two things to mention about this is that one, you'll be creating a child from the very moment of conception to then be denied either a mother or a father. Um, In chapter seven of the book, I tell the story of several now adult children of gays and lesbian couples who say, we love our true moms. We wish we would have had a mom and a dad. Uh, And one of them said that same sex marriage creates an institution for missing parents. Uh, That with single parenting or divorce parenting, No one sets out as the ideal to be a single mom or to be a divorced mom or something like that. With same-sex parenting, it actually creates a new ideal. With marriage equality, we've changed what the ideal is. And so those children aren't denied a father because of human frailty, because of the fall, none of us can live up to our ideals, but because we actually changed the ideal. And so they said that, you know, those children won't even be allowed to say, I wish I had a father as well. For the child with two moms to say, I miss my dad, will be viewed itself as a form of homophobia. And I actually um, cite an amicus brief written by a child welfare advocate saying that the difference between those children a generation ago and those children today is that when they're taking to see a therapist, therapists are telling the children the problems with them, and that they shouldn't be judging their parents. In addition though, is that what we know about assisted reproductive technology is that many more embryos are created than will ever be implanted and of the embryos that are implanted, many are, quote, selectively reduced, the euphemism for aborted. Because what the, what the ch- couple wants is one child, but they might create 10 embryos, put five of those embryos in a freezer forever, implant five of those embryos, and then selective, engage in selective reduction to only have one that they carried a term. So it's rife with embryo destruction. That's the third consequence. Fourth consequence, I'll close on because I hit it earlier. It's for religious freedom. If you redefine marriage, um, what will happen to people who continue to believe the truth about marriage? They will be told that their views about marriage are bigoted or homophobic, are unacceptable one way or the other. And the best way to look at this is just look at what's happened to Catholic charity adoption agencies. Look at what's happened to the baker, the florist, and the photographer. We should take the activists at their word. For the past decade, they have said, if you're against same-sex marriage, you're just like the racists against interracial marriage. Now they are starting to treat us that way. Uh, And so that's going to be the fourth consequence of this ruling. So with that, I'll stop and uh, I want to close on a somewhat more positive note before getting to your questions. To just say, this is where the pro-life movement was uh, 42 years ago. They were told that they had just lost this epic Supreme Court case. They were told that public opinion was shifting against them. They were told that all of the young people were in favor of abortion. And then pro-life politicians evolved and became pro-choice. Ted Kennedy, Al Gore, Bill Clinton, Jesse Jackson, they all started their career as pro-life Democrats. And they all have ended up as pro-choice Democrats. they could have given up, they could have said, oh wait, all of these pro-life politicians are evolving, all of the young people say that I'm on the wrong side of history, um, the court has now just found a constitutional right to abortion. Well, maybe we should focus on some other issue, maybe we should focus on the environment, let's work on something else. That's not what they did. Uh, 40 years ago, those pro-lifers did the hard work of defending our freedoms and of bearing witness to the truth. And now today, my generation is more pro-life than my parents' generation. And now a majority of Americans identify as pro-life. And it's easy today to be pro-life. It's much easier today to be pro-life than it was 40 years ago. And, of course, look, it's difficult today to defend the truth about marriage. Uh, If you don't believe that, just follow me on Twitter and see uh, some of the nice responses that I get. Um, But it's worth it. Because 40 years from now, whatever the issue du jour is of the future, people will say, oh, it's easy being pro-marriage today. And they'll be talking about how hard it is to be doing whatever it is 40 years from now they'll be doing. Uh, So that's just a word of encouragement to say um, we each have a vocation here. Um, I do philosophy and public policy. Some of you might do theology and pastoral care. Some of you might be artists, musicians, uh, playwrights, uh, because we need, all walks of, we need culture, we need arguments, we need pastoral treatment, we need marriage preparation, we need marriage counseling. Um, There's a role for everyone given whatever your gifts and talents are to contribute to building a culture that supports strong families. Do you know if anyone's
0: planning the first march?
1: So there's now been uh, two march for marriages. Um, One, they started doing this after they struck down the Federal Defense of Marriage Act. And that first one was in, um, it was on the anniversary of that decision. So it was at the end of June, it was terribly hot. It was like 90 degree heat. So social conservatives have the worst of luck. We're either marching in snow or we're battling heat stroke. So what they did for the second one was they, they did it the weekend when oral arguments took place. I think oral arguments were on um, a Tuesday. And I think either that Saturday or Sunday before the oral arguments, they had the March for Marriage. And my understanding is that it's going to continue in the spring of each year. So it would actually be a nicer time of the year. And um, the group is the National Organization for Marriage. Uh, Brian Brown is the president of that group. Uh, You see Brian a lot on TV. Um, He's a great spokesperson. And uh, that group has kind of um, done the heavy lifting on this issue.
0: Uh, Doctor, regarding possible consequences, is anybody discussing diseases and medical issues?
1: Um, Not really. I mean, and so what's interesting here is that you can look to the CDC and the data is there. Um, People tend not to be discussing it because um, it doesn't tend to be effective as a public argument. um, Because if you think about what your audience will hear when you say that, um, they won't be hearing it the way that you intend to be saying it. That tends to be an argument that they hear as being anti-gay or homophobic. Um, so that hasn't been one of the arguments that um, many of these groups have focused on. Um, but the CDC data does show um, higher rates of various uh, both uh, um, uh, bodily and uh, psychological illnesses. There's um, a book that Elizabeth Marquart wrote, maybe a decade ago now, um, titled Worlds Apart. And it was looking at the adult lives of children of divorce. And she found that children of divorce still had those impacts as adults, you know, like Cardinal Schoenberg and like yourself. um, She was, I think, herself in a similar situation and it was a research project she did to see, well, is it just something, does divorce only impact kids when they're kids or do those uh, consequences last? Um, and she found that they lasted and so she wrote that up. Um, there was then a report that um, uh, the think tank she was associated did titled My Daddy's Name is Donor uh, to think, well, what about the children of anonymous sperm donors? And again, when this report was done, it was uh, heterosexuals using anonymous sperm donation. So again, it's not as if any of these problems are uh, uniquely um, uh, the cause of gay marriage or of gays and lesbians. Um, it's just changing the definition of marriage will change these things. and One of her colleagues, um, a very brave girl, um, Alana Newman, created a website titled Anonymous Us uh, for children who had been anonymously conceived uh, through sperm donor to now share their stories of the struggles that they experience, not knowing half of their biological identity. Um, And the reason I share those two things to start with is that there is lots of research on very similar phenomenon. Because if you think about what's gonna take place uh, with some of the same sex parenting situation is that it's gonna be similar to the anonymous sperm donation in a straight couple, right? So if you have my daddy's name is donor and you have a mom and a dad, will it change anything if my daddy's name is donor and you have two moms? Probably it'll be pretty similar. And so we can learn from other types of family structures that have had these um, uh, same challenges. The last thing I'll mention is that the, Uh, the seventh chapter I I quote about six or seven people who have now told the stories of being children of same sex couples. And I think that's uh, important to see uh, from them, what was it like loving your two moms, but missing your dad? Um, Because I think I don't yet know how to teach this to children. So if the the question was more in that line of like, how do we teach our own kids, um, all I can do is Suggest what I've said the night about how to teach it to adults and then it's you know It's up to people who actually know how to communicate to children. I don't know how to communicate to a fifth grader I I just don't have that skill set, but I would look to what have other children said about their own experiences To get insights that you could then find in a way of an age-appropriate context to share with your children What kind of response did you get from the Harvard Law School students that you spoke with? Were you trying to persuade them or just give them uh, kind of your take on the Supreme Court decision? It was uh, remarkably um, civil and um, they were very receptive. Like I was actually somewhat surprised by it and some of the other students who were in attendance afterwards, one of their first comments was, we thought this would have been more controversial. Um, And so I don't know what that suggests. My hope is that this suggests that your average Harvard Law student isn't an ideologue or an activist. They are liberal. Your average Harvard Law student is on the left side of a left to right spectrum, but they're not a hearted activist who needs to stamp out all opposition. Um, So they agreed, they thought that Kennedy's opinion was poorly reasoned, even if they liked its outcome. Uh, And they pointed that lots of people have said that. Lots of people said, well, we don't like the way that he justified his conclusion, but we do like the conclusion he came to. Um, that's not a secret. I think you could read any liberal magazine after the decision, they all more or less said that. And then the argument I made to them was, all right, so now you guys just got a big victory. Um, how are you going to treat the people who lost? You know, do you need to stamp out this 70 year old grandmother or is your movement so successful that it can tolerate a couple dissenters. Uh, and so what I was trying to do with them is appeal to kind of their more um, enlightened self uh, to say, look, we can be capacious, we can be uh, um, uh, uh, generous with people who we disagree with. We don't have to view them as the enemy. And, stamp. and so I was very um, pleasantly surprised and pleased um, that there were students who didn't seem you know, overtly hostile to such an idea.
0: Pray for us.